Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of COVID and the Classroom, a podcast dedicated to getting kids back to school, putting parents in positions of power, and navigating the new world of education in a time of coronavirus. I'm your host, Mary Claire Amsalem. To start off the very first episode, I just want to make a few statements about where we're at and what I believe when looking at this new unique moment that we are in as a country. And the first thing that I want to say unequivocally off the bat is that it's a very difficult time to be a parent during this pandemic. And it might seem like an obvious point, but I think it should be said and I think it should be said over and over again that being a parent during a pandemic is very difficult. I became a parent during the pandemic. I had my son at the end of March, and that was scary. It was a scary time to be having a baby. There wasn't a lot that we knew, and what we did know became untrue the next day as we were learning more information, and that was scary. But that being said, I thank God every day that he is so young that he doesn't know what's going on, that he is not older and missing his friends and seeing people walk around with masks and being scared of that uh, and not understanding why he can't go to school or being scared to go outside. Those are really scary, confusing things for kids to try and understand. And it's very difficult as a parent to try and navigate that. And then put on top of it, your child's school is not reopening. So you're a parent, maybe you're working from home, you're being a full-time parent, you're being a full-time employee, and then you have to try and figure out how to also be a full-time teacher for your child. It's too much. It's too much to be asking, and no one should be asking you to do that. Second, public health is important. The coronavirus is important, and it should be taken very seriously. But the science doesn't support keeping schools closed. So all public schools should reopen immediately. They can do so safely, they can do so wisely, but schools need to reopen. We know now, and we have known throughout this this pandemic, that children seem more or less safe from the serious consequences of this virus. And when it comes to teachers, we know how to protect adults. We know how to keep them safe. One of my best friends is a dentist, and she her she was out of work for a long time. But she's back to work now. She is covered in PPE. She's wearing two masks, a face shield, but she's back, and she's sticking her hands in people's mouths. So I have to think that if she can do that, if we can find a way for dentists to continue doing their work, then we can find a way for teachers to safely and responsibly get back to the very important work of teaching our children. The next statement that I want to make is one broadly about how I approach education policy in general as an education policy analyst, which is that assignment by zip code public schooling has been a disaster. And that fact has never been made more clear than during the middle of this pandemic. When you assign students to a public school based on where they live, it reinforces the cycle of poverty, and it takes decisions about your child's education out of the hands of you, the parent, and puts it in the hands of someone who doesn't know your kid as well. They don't know how your kid learns math. They don't know how your child likes to study. They don't know the types of things that stress your child out. They don't know that your son needs to go run around once an hour for him to keep his focus. Those are things that you know about your child. And since you know that about your child, you should be the one making decisions about where, how and where your kids learn. It was wrong 
that you didn't have that choice, that a lot of parents didn't have that choice prior to the pandemic. But now that we see public schools closing down, it has never been more clear that parents need options. They need another choice besides asking them to take on the impossible task of being a parent, being a worker, and being a teacher all at the same time. Each week on COVID in the Classroom, we will give you a rundown on some of the most important issues affecting education right now. Here are some of those stories. Fox News reports that a Tennessee school district is under fire for asking parents to sign a form agreeing to not eavesdrop on their school's virtual classes over concerns that parents could overhear confidential information. And when I first heard this story, and I heard a lot of the pushback being, well, you know, no parent can just go wander around a public school on a daily basis because, you know, other parents aren't consenting to you being around their child, you know, totally understand that. However, I think that there's something going on here. The Rutherford County Schools recently reversed their position after getting some pushback from parents. One of those parents told Fox News, what are they trying to hide? What's the problem? Why won't they let us sit in? We have a major problem in education, not just here in Tennessee, but in the country where they are indoctrinating our children with propaganda. Now, when you hear the word indoctrinating and you hear the word propaganda, you might think, okay, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. But if you look at the rhetoric that a lot of these teachers are using, it's definitely giving me and it should be giving parents a little bit of a cause for concern. A few weeks ago, uh, a Philadelphia teacher tweeted a a thread that, that went viral which was pretty disturbing, but it sort of showed what's going into the minds of a lot of teachers when approaching the school uh, year this year. He voiced concerns about the damage that helicopter parents might cause if they overhear lessons on topics such as gender and sexuality. So there's a lot to unpack in this statement, but I think it definitely shows that there is more work being done in the public school system than just simply educating our kids. And as an education policy analyst, I look at this as an issue with our colleges of education. Because we have teacher certification, we are pushing all of our teachers in our country through the same system. You have to go get your master's in education in order to teach at a public school. And the problem is that those colleges of education all work from a very similar ideology. They all recite a lot of the same viewpoints. And so, you know, you're a young student just out of college. You go get your master's in education and you take all of these classes on critical race theory, and you hear these buzzwords like white fragility, and you think, I'm woke now. (laughs) I am woke. I understand it. And then you go out into the world, and you think, because I am woke, it is now my job to educate the children of the world in their wokeness and save them from the parents who aren't as woke as me. That is a really, really troubling way to be approaching public education. And a lot of teachers don't think this way. A lot of teachers, most of them who are parents themselves, know that they don't know what's best for someone else's child. They're responsible for their own children. But there is a troubling trend in teachers who are coming out of these colleges of education who are young, are 24 years old, have never been married, probably don't have kids themselves, haven't started a business, haven't done a lot of these major life things that might give you some perspective on the ability to teach young children, but you took a class on critical race theory. And so you are woke. 
this is something that we need to be constantly fighting back against. And so when I hear that there are school districts who are saying, don't listen in on what we're teaching your kids, what they're saying is we have a plan for your children. And you're going to get in the way of that if you listen in. So why don't you, you know, go in the other room, shut the door, and let us continue the work that we have for your child. It's so wrong. It's so wrong. When you choose to have a child, that's a choice between you and your spouse, between you and your partner. That's not a choice that you're handing your children off to the public school system who then decides to raise your children with their values, not your own. We need to be constantly making sure that parental values are the ones being protected when it comes to education. Next up, a Rhode Island Teachers Union filed a lawsuit late on Thursday to prevent schools from opening uh, the following Monday. Union officials asked that a judge block school reopenings in Bristol Warren until they pass health and safety inspections. The lawsuit reads, employees will suffer irreparable harm if they are forced to come to work, possibly exposing themselves to novel coronavirus and COVID-19. Dr. Corey DeAngelis, who we'll be talking to later in the podcast, did some recent research on this that showed that School districts that have heavy teachers union presence are the ones most likely to be shut down. And so it's just something to keep in mind that a lot of these school closings where coronavirus and and health and safety protection should be the primary concern and how can we safely reopen schools, a lot of this is due to teachers union influence rather than a genuine conversation about, well, how can we safely reopen schools? Similar story, Bill de Blasio. Oh, Bill de Blasio, where would we be as a country if we couldn't just come together and collectively dunk on Bill de Blasio? So Bill de Blasio, New York Mayor Bill de Blasio, announced on Tuesday that he is delaying the reopening of the nation's biggest public school system to in-person learning for two weeks after the city's powerful teachers union complained about inadequate COVID-19 safeguards and threatened to strike. Michael Mulgrew, president of the Union Federation of Teachers, was with de Blasio when the mayor announced the change. And if you look at the headlines surrounding this story, I mean, first of all, you've got the teachers union rep right there as de Blasio is announcing that this will be delayed. So I think it's very clear where that pressure is coming from. But the headlines read things like teacher strike avoided, not kids are kept out of school for longer, parents left with fewer options, parents left desperately trying to put together a plan for their children's school because suddenly their school's not reopening. That's not what the headlines read. The headlines read teacher strike avoided. And so again, when we're talking about these types of issues, we need to be putting the people who the education system was meant to serve, children, at the forefront of these conversations. We know how to protect teachers. We know how to serve them. We should be prioritizing those options and looking towards reopening schools because, as I stated at the beginning, we should be treating the closure of schools like the national crisis that it is. News from L.A. County, the KFIAM 640 radio station, obtained an audio recording of an L.A. County public health director, Dr. Ferrer, repeatedly saying in a conference call that she doesn't expect K-12 through schools to reopen until we are done with the election in November. Now, when I first read this headline, I thought, okay, it was probably just an arbitrary line that she was cutting, you know, saying schools are reopened by Christmas or schools are reopened, you know, by Easter, that that was said before. But I went to go listen to this recording, and it said so many times, and the way in which she was saying this does not seem like the election was an arbitrary line. And you don't want to believe that school reopenings have become politicized, because it's too horrible. I mean, it's too horrible to think that something so serious, like shutting down schools across the country, 
is linked in any way to the politics going on in our country. But you hear statements like this, and it's definitely a cause for concern. And if I were a parent in L.A. County and listening to this, I would be up in arms being frustrated that my schools aren't being opened because of something surrounding the election. What's going on in the world of adults should not allow kids to suffer while they're out of school. Up next, we're going to be debunking some of the biggest myths that you hear about school choice. And we're also going to be talking about pandemic pods. What are they? Why are parents choosing them? And why are we getting some pushback on the creation of pandemic pods? To talk about that, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Lindsay Berg and Dr. Cora DeAngelis. I'm joined now by two of probably the most knowledgeable people I know about school choice, uh, Dr. Lindsay Burke and Dr. Corey DeAngelis. Lindsay Burke is the director of the Center for Education Policy and the Will Skillman Fellow in Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. And Corey is the director of school choice at the Reason Foundation, an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, and executive director at the Educational Freedom Institute. So I am so excited to be talking to both of you right now because we are in such a unique time right now in terms of school choice. So before we dive in, I would love to just get both of your general reactions and, and comments on this moment that we're living in right now during the pandemic and what that means for the education system at large and for the school choice movement. Well, thanks so much for having both of us, Mary Claire. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to uh, help launch the first episode of the podcast. So thrilling to be here. It's it's just such an interesting time. And I don't think you could possibly overstate the extent to which this pandemic has really upended education and not just K-12 education, right? Preschool and childcare and K-12 and higher education. Every possible aspect has been touched by COVID-19. And I think there are basically two big issues, at least in the K-12 space, that are going to have a long-term impact on how we think about education. The first is that I think this has really given families a chance to take a step back and to just really assess whether what they were doing pre-pandemic in terms of their children's education uh, was the best fit, or maybe there is an alternative and maybe they have found that alternative in things like pandemic pods and micro schools, or even just uh, working remotely, um, looking at different private school options while public schools are largely closed. So I think that's the first big shift is reassessing how and where their children are learning post-pandemic and what that means long-term for their families. And then I think the second big impact is that parents really have an opportunity to look in detail at what public schools are teaching their children. So to really take a, a deep dive into what their kids are learning in terms of civics in particular, that's something that uh, is getting close scrutiny right now in the wake of the 1619 project. And so those are, I think, two key components that are going to stick around long term. Um, that's reassessing choices and then the content that's taught to their children. Yeah, I think Lindsay is mostly right in everything that she said, but also I, I believe that families are re-envisioning the factory model of schooling itself because they got a lot of families got a taste of homeschooling in one form or another. And if you look at the surveys coming out of EdChoice each month, 
Families have reported that they're significantly more likely to say that they now have a more favorable view of homeschooling as a result of COVID-19 as opposed to having a less favorable view. Of course, there were mixed views uh, of, of, of this experience, but uh, overall, uh, families reported positive uh, experiences from having their children being less stressed out uh, uh, throughout the day and learning more at a fraction of the time and being more engaged with the material because it's more student-centered and student-driven. So I think people are rethinking that um, model of education, and it's being shown in the homeschool filings across the United States. For example, the most recent one that I saw came out of Texas. The homeschool filings have actually increased by 288% from the same time last year. And if you look at essentially any other district that has reported this information, we've seen similarly large increases. In Vermont, for example, they reported a 75% increase in homeschool filings. And people are leaving the public school system in large numbers. If you look at the Gallup poll on this, it's the latest national poll on this, they estimate that the public school system will lose about seven percentage points of their student enrollment in in, in proportion terms, which would be about a 3.5 million student reduction in the public school system. So we're seeing a lot of shifting uh, going on, but then also I think families are re-envisioning how school finance should look, how education funding should look. And I think that they're rightly understanding that it doesn't make any sense at all for the public school system and the public school buildings to get their children's education dollars when they're not even open and when they're not even providing their children with an adequate education. I think families are seeing that they're doing a lot of the work in terms of home-based education or even when they're switching to a private school setting that the money should follow that child to wherever they're getting an adequate education. It shouldn't stay with a system that isn't adequately serving them. And we do this just – this is just how essentially any other taxpayer-funded initiative works today from food stamps to Pell Grants to pre-K programs. In all of those types of programs, the funding goes to the individual person or the individual family and not the institution. It wouldn't make any sense to force low-income families to spend their food stamps at residentially assigned government-run grocery stores. Rightly so, in today's environment, families are able to take those dollars to Whole Foods, Walmart, Trader Joe's, whatever uh, provider of the service works best for them. And so I think families are similarly looking at the education system and thinking and, and understanding that that money should follow their child to wherever they're getting an education, whether that's a public school, a charter school, a private school, or a home option. So because we are in this very unique moment when it comes to school choice, we're seeing a lot of pushback from teachers unions, from other people who want to really fight back against families choosing the best education options for their families. So what I would love to do now is talk to you all about some of the biggest school choice myths that are out there so that we can sort of break this down for families who might be might be interested. So I'm going to read off a few school choice myths, and I would love for you guys to just hit us with, with your facts and, and let's, uh, let's debunk these. So first school choice myth is that school choice programs defund public schools. <laughs> Well, I would say Corey is really the master at pushing back <laughs> against school choice myths. So I'm he really sure he is. is. <laughs> well, Everyone should follow Corey on Twitter. <laughs> exactly. But I will say, you know, there's there's so much bound up in that, right? First, this idea that, that basically the district proponents, right, the special interest groups, the unions, they're basically admitting that if given a choice, families would leave the district system right. potentially, right? So I always find that funny that that admission is sort of bound up in that argument there. 
Um, but also there's the reality that when we look at private school choice options across the country, states that have them, the uptake rate tends to be relatively modest, particularly early on. You know, you don't see an immediate mass exodus. You tend to not see a mass exodus at all. What you see are the families who are least well served by the public system, having the ability to choose something else and finally being able to find an option that's the right fit for their children. And then I would also just say we can look, look at a state like Florida that has probably uh, the most robust private school choice options in the country in terms of the number of students who are participating, the amount of funding that's in the programs, they have a tax credit program, they have a, an education savings account option, a voucher program for children with special needs. They've really got it all, a robust charter sector, the largest virtual school in the country. And yet district schools are still there, right? We haven't seen district school closures they're still thriving, quite frankly, and the kids who choose, emphasis on choose in Florida, to remain in the district system have actually seen improvements, we know this empirically, as a result of more and more competition, right? District schools are improving as they're catalyzed to meet family needs in the wake of families having more options. Yeah, and I'll just say school choice doesn't defund public schools. Public schools defund families. School choice <laughs> just returns the money to the right to the hands of the rightful owners. The money doesn't belong to the government institution. As I said in the opening, it's meant for educating the child. So, uh, yeah, school choice doesn't defund public schools. And you'd similarly wouldn't say that allowing families to use their food stamps at Whole Foods defunds Trader Joe's. No, it doesn't steal money from Trader Joe's. The money's for the family. It doesn't belong to any particular institution. So that's uh, how I respond basically to this. But then also it gets, it gets even worse than that, right? Um, School districts are funded based on enrollment counts, but they're not completely based on funded based on enrollment counts. It tends to be about 60 to 80 percent of the funding is based on student enrollment. And what that means mathematically is when you lose students to school choice programs, your public school district actually financially benefits on a per pupil basis. So like in Texas, for example, 68 percent of funding is based on student enrollment counts. That means they get to keep 32 percent of the funding. And so on a per child basis, they actually financially benefit. Just imagine if you uh, were shopping at Walmart and you took your food stamps, if you're a low income family using food stamps to Trader Joe's and Walmart got to keep 32 percent of your food stamps each week for not providing you with any services. That would be great for them. They'd be happy about that. Similarly, I would argue that the public school district should be happy they get to keep any money at all. I think that that's a really great point. Underlying that argument is, you know, the the glaring fact that we don't structure other government programs this way. Mm -hmm. I mean, in food stamps, we don't say you have to go to your neighborhood grocery store. Mm -hmm. And if that grocery store, you know, doesn't provide high quality food, then then you're sort of out of luck. Definitely interesting. And using your Pell Grants to go to Notre Dame does not steal money from your local community college. That would be ridiculous to make that argument. And similarly ridiculous to make this argument when it comes to K through 12 education. Um, yeah, use, using your your pre-K program dollars at a private provider of pre-K doesn't steal money from the public provider of pre-K. Why? Because it belongs to the families. And I think Lindsay's point is the strongest here, though, that it's an admission that you believe that when people are given the, op given the option to leave your service, your, your school, that they, they will flock in large numbers. I mean, you similarly hear that school choice will destroy the public education system. Well, what does that say about your beliefs about your product? It, it's an admission that you're serving an inferior product and that people will flee.
Absolutely. So this sort of feeds into the second school choice myth uh, that I think that the three of us probably hear the most often is that schools are underfunded, that the problem (laughs) is that we need to properly invest in public schools. We haven't been doing that. We need to start right now in 2020. We need to start properly investing in schools. And then that will solve the problems that these schools do not have enough money. Yeah, it is certainly not the case that district (laughs) schools are underfunded. We can look at historical increases. We can look at per pupil increases over time. I mean, take just the federal portion of education. We talk about this a lot uh, in our Center for Ed Policy. The federal portion, and remember, this is only 8.5% of all K-12 education funding. States and localities pay for more than 90% of what we spend on K-12 education. So just the the federal share at 8.5%. Since the 1960s, federal taxpayers have spent $2 trillion on K-12 education. It's just a breathtaking amount of money. And yet we have not seen anything really to speak of in the way of improvements for students. We can look at the work that Paul Peterson and Eric Hanyashek have done most recently on this question And they were able to determine that in 1965, when President Lyndon Johnson launched the Great Society efforts, which really got the federal government heavily involved in all aspects of pre-K through higher education, but in the K-12 arena, when that happened, there was the equivalent of a four-grade level difference in learning between low-income children and children in more affluent families. So there's a four-grade level difference. And today, as Hanyashek and Peterson found, it is still a four-grade level difference in learning. So despite that $2 trillion in federal spending, we have not seen any narrowing of the academic achievement gap. And you know, we can look in terms of per pupil expenditure increases over time that inflation adjusted. It has uh, tripled since the 1960s. And so real dollars, right? Um, Corey gets this pushback a lot on Twitter because uh, people think that he's not inflation adjusting. <laughs> he throws out these numbers. Real means inflation adjusted. Real means inflation adjusted. And even so, when I say inflation adjusted, they still start bringing up the price of a Coke in 1960 versus today. <laughs> I saw that. That was hilarious. Right. So in real dollars, right, we have tripled the amount that, that we spend. And so this idea that schools are underfunded is is just not so. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Lindsay. And even if you look every single decade, we've increased real per pupil inflation adjusted uh, education expenditures in the United States. Um, from 1980, it's incre- it's doubled. From 1990, it's increased by about 38 or 40 percent. Um, so it's not a money issue. It's not a funding issue. It's a, an issue of incentives. You can spend a billion dollars per child and still get the same academic results if you don't spend that money wisely. I think most people understand that. And monopolies don't have a strong incentive to spend that money wisely. And another, uh, some more evidence that it's not about the money, it's about the incentives, is that millions of families voluntarily select out select charter schools and, and, and pull their children out of traditional public schools when, and the charter schools get a lot less money than the traditional public schools on average. Um, my, my latest report with Dr. Wolf on this and my other colleagues at the University of Arkansas, we found that in f- about 14 different cities in the United States, the charter schools actually get about 27% less funding per pupil uh, than the traditional schools. So if it was a money issue, why, why are so many families switching voluntarily into a system where they're getting uh, less money per child? 
And then also just look at the DC voucher program. DC spends over $31,000 per child per year. The latest experimental evaluation of this program, which is funded at a third of the amount, actually a little less than a third, it's actually about $9,500 per student using the voucher program. You still have families in large numbers trying to get into this program, even though they're only getting about a third of the funding they would have gotten in the public school system. But the, the latest experiment on this found no difference in test scores for a third of the cost, but huge increases in satisfaction with the program, reports of safety, and then attendance. And we know that when we ask parents, you know, what matters to them in choosing a school, safety ranks among the top and how the school performs and testing ranks among the bottom. Next myth I would like to discuss, and Corey, I hear you talk about this all the time, and it's so infuriating because it can just be empirically proved false. But uh, we hear often that vouchers don't work, that there's a ton of evidence that voucher programs at school, that they say vouchers with school choice programs generally are ineffective at improving outcomes for students. Well, if they don't work, then why are families choosing them in large numbers? I mean, we, we don't even have to pull out the evidence to, to show otherwise because it, proof that it works is that families are choosing these schools in large numbers. And um, I would like to ask the other side what they think about low-income families choosing these programs if, and why would they would be choosing these programs if they don't work. Um, I would say uh, also, though, we should look at the evidence. There are 17 random assignment studies uh, uh, on this uh, topic linking access to private school choice programs to student test score outcomes, which, again, families don't care all that much about. Uh, but the majority of these studies find statistically significant positive effects overall or for subgroups of students. And only two of these experiments out of these 17 have found statistically significant negative effects on test scores, both in Louisiana, which happens to be one of the most highly regulated voucher programs in the world. But even then in, in Louisiana, the families are choosing these schools for a reason. And when you ask them, they report that uh, it's, it's a lot of other things like the safety and culture of the school that can have huge benefits for the student that is not captured in a standardized test score. And then again, these programs are woefully underfunded relative to the traditional public school system. I think in Louisiana, I think they get about half um, of the per people funding that they would have gotten in the public schools, yet families are still choosing them. Um, and uh, they're choosing them for reasons that are not measured by these tests. But even then, look, I mean, the majority of these studies find positive effects, especially when you start looking at the non-test score outcomes that families actually care about. If you look at satisfaction studies or safety studies, these are overwhelmingly positive. If you look at the civic outcomes of these schools, the, the crime-reducing effects of these programs, they're all much more positive, and that's why the, the enemies of school choice don't like to look at the non-test score uh, outcomes of school choice programs, because that's what parents actually care about. But then also, let's just think about, uh, you know, um, this argument a little more, because it's based on averages, right? Like, let's, let's, let's assume that test scores are, are, are actually important outcomes. Um, it could be that the program did a, did a good job at, at helping uh, students' academic outcomes for certain students, but not others. But uh, random assignment studies, uh, and essentially all scientific studies, uh, require you to uh, look at average effects, not individual effects. So why should you take one one low-income family's choice away based on the quote-unquote bad decision of another low-income family's choice? That doesn't make any sense to me. And then also, yeah, I mean, 
when when people talk about this evidence, they'll point to places like Louisiana because that is the only negative experimental evaluation of a voucher program, even looking at test scores. Why should that take away families' choices in places like California? What did they do wrong? Um, and so I think this whole conversation is 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 a strange conversation to be having. Your, your right to choose your child's education shouldn't hinge on a couple of studies that academics did uh, that, uh, that that don't know the individual needs of other people's children. Yeah, I, I would second that. Um, and I would also just say, Corey's done a lot of really good work looking at some of the other um, outcomes that are less tangible and more difficult to capture in test scores. So things like volunteerism, um, increased charitable giving, general civic engagement, uh, tolerance, all of these things that we hope schools impart in children when they have them for 13 years. And uh, Corey's research with Pat Wolf has shown that private schools do a better job on that score as well. And that's something that is really critical and often gets overlooked. But this question of um, the difficulty of measuring things that are a little less tangible, but that parents really care about is important. Um, when I've talked to families over the years about why they have chosen particular private schools, you're right, Mary Claire, you know, it's rare to hear a parent say, well, it was how the private school did on the state standardized test. You never hear that. What you hear are things like, my child is safe. My child's happy. My child's teacher knows his name and smiles at him when he comes into school in the morning. And those are the types of outcomes that matter so much, but we just simply can't capture in standardized tests. Lindsay, what's interesting to me is a lot of the enemies of school choice and defenders of the government-run school system, they hate standardized tests as a metric yeah. for success when it comes to holding traditional public schools accountable. And so what's interesting is they'll, they'll in one breath say that standardized test scores aren't important, and then they'll turn around and, and cite studies based on standardized tests to try to eliminate their competition. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. I would like to turn to a conversation about pandemic pods, because this is something that, that's been going around in the education policy realm you know, since, since the start of the pandemic. But a lot of listeners and a lot of parents might not know exactly what a pandemic pod is. And sort of going with our, our theme of sort of debunking school choice myths, there's been a lot of really, really heavy and and sad, I would say, pushback to these pandemic pods. I believe that it was one school district. It might have been Denver. I don't know. Lindsay, you might know better. Yeah, I think it was Denver. Um, that, that basically called parents racist for choosing to teach their kids in a pod. So, so let's debunk that a little bit, but then sort of just get into what a pandemic pod is, why parents are choosing them, and why this might be a, a good choice for a lot of parents during this time. Yeah. So the I think districts shaming parents issue is such a big issue right now. You know, families are doing everything that they possibly can. Everybody was just thrown into turmoil, educational turmoil post-pandemic. You know, we were all all suddenly accidental homeschoolers. And so families were just doing whatever they could to ensure educational continuity for their children when the districts, in large part, were not able to do that. And by the way, are still not really doing that in all too many instances even though we're now six months out from the pandemic and they should have prepared by now. Um, so families immediately post-pandemic, uh, when schools closed, started banding together 
and forming these pandemic pods. Um, sometimes they're called learning pods. Um, other folks refer to the general idea as micro schooling. And they kind of look like homeschooling co-ops, which a lot of people have been doing for many, many years. But families banded together and they pulled together kids who were either in the neighborhood or another social circle, but small groups of kids, sometimes, you know, four kids, maybe up to 12 students and kind of co-quarantined their cohort together and then figured out exactly what those students needed to learn and chose homes to conduct their pod in and started pooling their resources and contributing financially to their pod so that they could hire a teacher to teach to their pod. Uh, it was really just an amazing thing to see. It was amazing demonstration of civil society in action, what we know makes America a wonderful and unique place. Yeah, what's interesting to me in all of this is that Denver Public Schools, the first thing that they complained about in their statement was that they were worried about losing $10,600 per child, uh, which tells you exactly what they were worried about. And they tried to make it about equity, but uh, the main point was about losing funding at the, that they didn't want to lose. They even used an exclamation point. I think they said something like, don't unenroll your children from public schools, exclamation <laughs> point. Um, but then they also went on to say that you should oppose private school voucher programs, which if it's about equity, they should they should tell parents to use private school voucher programs because advantaged folks already have the means to be able to afford these pandemic pods. They can pay out of pocket for private uh, tutors, whereas less advantaged families may not have the resources right now. And so vouchers would be an equalizer in that sense. Um, so. Uh, Funding the students directly would allow more families to access these options. And I think this could be a good move for teachers, too. I think there was just a story in Washington Post that uh, pointed out that a teacher uh, switched to uh, to 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 uh, doing one of these pandemic pods with six children and she was making $15 an hour. You multiply that out by six children. It's $90 an hour. You multiply that out by uh, a full year's worth of uh, uh, of instruction. That could be up to, you know, over $100,000, $120,000 uh, for, for that, that teacher. And then also think if the money followed the child. If we had an education savings account program, you know, we spend over $15,000 per child per year in public schools in the United States. Get 10 students together in a household, that's $150,000 in revenues. It's a smaller class size for the teacher, potentially higher salaries, uh, after, even after uh, accounting for significant overhead costs. And then it, and then teachers would have, uh, more autonomy as well. So this could be a benefit for families, teachers, and, and, and students. And what's interesting is in the Denver Public Schools statement, they also pointed out that they didn't want families to seek out teachers for these pods, because, which is another admission that they believed that teachers would exit the system as well when given these alternative employment opportunities. Well, and if I could just say to you on the Denver statement, this is something that Jason Bedrick, who's at EdChoice, and I pointed out recently in that statement where the public school district is saying, if you as a family form a pandemic pod, you will be complicit in exacerbating educational inequality which is quite a thing for a district to say to families. But what Jason and I had pointed out was it's also an implicit admission that the pods that families are forming are providing a superior product to what the district crisis online model is providing to kids in Colorado. So that was quite something to see. And then the last thing I'd say on Corey's ESA point, 
That's a great point. And it's already happening. If you look at states like Arizona, uh, we are in communication with quite a few families in Arizona who are currently using their ESAs to pay for their pandemic pods, to pay for the teachers and the private tutors that they're hiring to teach to their pod. So this isn't even a theoretical question anymore. Families are doing it. And education savings accounts, because they are um, such a refinement of the voucher model, because you can pay for discrete services and individual products and providers, they are the perfect policy pairing with pandemic pods. There has never been a better match. It's the perfect sort of policy version of a wine and cheese pairing, right? There's never <laughs> been anything more perfectly suited to the moment that we're in than an ESA, the financing mechanism to make pods uh, work for every single student who wants them. Yeah, absolutely. And going back to what you said at the very beginning about how this is such a great victory for American civil society. I mean, it warms my heart to see that at this like really horrible time in our country, we see these families getting together in these neighborhoods and just coming together and saying, you know, we can weather this storm together, we can figure it out and make sure that our kids are taken care of. I think it's so fantastic. And it's so sad to see people try and turn this into something negative. I, I think mm. it's it's really, really discouraging. Well, And, so, if, and if there's any blame here. It shouldn't be on families doing right, right by their children. It right. should be on the public school system for not adapting to the needs of those families. They have to figure something out for their children. Um, and, and so the blame is in the wrong place as well. Absolutely. So to wrap up, I want to play a little game called Who Said It? So I'm going to read an education-related quote, and you guys are going to guess who said it. The first one is going to be a bit of a layup, and it's specifically for Corey. I'm going to give a hint that this quote was said by some uh, prominent politician who said, my kids went to public schools. That was Elizabeth Warren. That was Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> few, few so Corey, ago. why is that quote significant? Tell us that story behind her saying, untruthfully, that her kids went to public schools. Well, yeah, she sent uh, Alex Warren to private schools, which is great. I'm glad she had that opportunity yeah. to do that. Uh, but uh, she shouldn't fight against school choice for other families who want that opportunity as well. But yeah, she lied to Sarah Carpenter on camera when uh, Sarah Carpenter, a, a, a mother, a grandmother uh, and a voter in Atlanta, um, was confronted Elizabeth Warren and, and asked her uh, and, and pointed out that she just wanted the same opportunities that Elizabeth Warren had for her children um, and that she had heard somewhere. Uh, it was probably in the New York Post when I wrote about it, that Elizabeth Warren sent her son to uh, private schools in Austin and in Pennsylvania. Uh, but yeah, she responded, no, Yeah, my children went to public schools. That, and and that if, if you haven't seen that video, I encourage everyone to look it up because it's kind of heartbreaking. It's this mother yeah. just very sort of desperately saying, you know, I, I want options for my kids. And Elizabeth Warren just saying no and, and sort of not telling the truth about mm. uh, about her own children's education. So it just sort of <laughs> underlines this hypocrisy that we have a lot of politicians who are making good choices for their own children, but don't want you to make good choices for your children. <laughs> Next quote is, I realized a quality education is the closest thing to magic in America. 
That's why I fight to this day for school choice mm-hmm. to make sure that every child in let me finish the quote <laughs> to make sure that every child in every neighborhood has a quality education. I don't care if it's public, private, charter, virtual, or homeschool. Or a homeschool. <laughs> when a parent has a better choice, their kids have Got a, a better, better chance. chance. Okay, so everyone knows. Everyone Great knows quote. that quote by heart. I guess it's Tim Scott at the RNC. So amazing. Here at COVID in the Classroom, we stan a Tim Scott school choice moment. He is such a good advocate for school choice. It warms my heart every time I hear him talk about this. So why don't you guys sort of explain, you know, that that was at the RNC. What was your general reaction when you heard him talk about that? Well, my first take is I think next time we should have a buzzer so we can buzz in. You know, in general, I would say it was amazing to see school choice get such prominent attention at the RNC. I mean, it was, you know, it was in the policy spotlight. And that is putting it mildly. Speaker after speaker talked about how important it is. And I think it's just a reflection in part of the moment that we're in, that there has never been a more critical time for education choice. And I thought it was a great use of the bully pulpit. Yeah, I agree with Lindsay. I think I counted at least 10 person at the Republican National Convention mentioned school choice in a positive light. So it's great that they're talking about it. And uh, uh, but ultimately, you know, most of the money uh, in education comes from the state and local government Mm -hmm. level. Ninety two percent of the funding is at the state and local government level. So, you know, it's good that uh, this is being talked about at the federal level. Um, but it's ultimately going to take the states to uh, enact policies to to get widespread school choice for 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 millions and millions of families. That's exactly right. Okay, next quote. <laughs> this is going to be really <laughs> obvious, but it just it needs to get talked about, and we don't have to dwell on it. But okay. If I'm president, Betsy DeVos's whole notion from charter schools to this are gone. Hmm. Ding, ding, ding. Is that Trump? Did Trump say that? No, the other one. Joe the other Biden. one. That was, that was Joe Biden. Um, yep. He said that at the, the public education forum. Public Sponsored education forum. by the largest labor union in the ni- United States, right? Yeah. So it's a confusing quote. Because, and I picked it because I just think it's funny. I think it's funny that anti-school choice advocates just use Betsy DeVos as this boogeyman, just sort of name Betsy DeVos and, you know, all all of that stuff that she's doing. We're not going to have any of that. (laughs) Um, But the reason I wanted to to talk about this quote is because, you know, parents hear this and they go, wait, what? Joe Biden's going to eliminate charter schools? So can you guys tell me uh, if we have a President Biden, can he eliminate charter schools in the United States? No. Uh, And like Corey said, education is 90 plus percent, 92 percent state and local. And that's where not only the money, but the authority is. It's states set up uh, their education systems. It's in state constitutions. They have an obligation. And within states, states define their charter school laws. That's not something the federal government can take away. States, you know, work with universities. They work with school districts to authorize charters. So, no, charters are safe and uh, charters have made it um, safe for students to get a safe and effective education. They've made it safe for larger private school efforts over the years as well. So I think uh, they are safe. And look, charter schools have long enjoyed bipartisan support for the most part. I mean, it is these are public schools at the end of the day, right? They are public schools that operate with more autonomy. So singling out charter schools just is incredibly misguided and, um, you know, is so, I don't know, 1990s. <laughs> yeah, I think Joe Biden could do some things. You know, there are little things that he could do, like take away federal funding from the charter schools, which could make it difficult for them to expand or, or exist, especially when their competition is getting the federal funding when they, when they would not be getting the federal funding. So that's part of it. 
Um, and then also in, in D.C., um, the Biden-Sanders Unity Task Force called to get rid of the D.C. voucher program, which serves 95 percent of the students are uh, identified as black or Hispanic students. And the average household income of students using the D.C. voucher program is only around twenty six or twenty seven thousand dollars. And that's um, and this is a high you know uh, cost of living area in D.C. So this is a. Uh, uh, it doesn't make sense for for anyone to call to get rid of uh, this kind of program serving disadvantaged families, especially when they're only getting you know a third of what would have been spent in the public schools. Yeah. Okay. Final quote to to wrap us up. I think this might be another kind of obvious one. <laughs> Democrats. All caps. Open schools, parentheses, safely now. <laughs> when schools are closed, let the money follow the child, parentheses, family, in all caps. <laughs> Why should schools be paid when they are closed? They shouldn't. It seems, right. seems like something on Twitter, right? It seems like something on Twitter. <laughs> Definitely President Trump. Trump. That was yeah. President Donald Trump. So, you know, I just wanted to talk about it because the president's been pretty clear on this. He's yeah. saying open up the schools and he's saying exactly what we've been saying on this podcast, mm-hmm. which is that money should follow the families. It should go to the students, especially it should go to the students always, but mm-hmm. especially if their schools are not reopening. Yeah. If, if your neighborhood Walmart didn't reopen, it wouldn't be that big of a deal, right? Because you could take your money elsewhere. And so similarly, if your school doesn't reopen, you should be able to take your child's education dollars elsewhere. And then this, this wouldn't be a big problem. I wouldn't, it wouldn't matter if the traditional public school districts chose not to reopen in person because then you could do something else. Um, and so I think that's the main takeaway here. Yeah, and I, I would just uh, reiterate that and say great use, again, of the bully pulpit, right? That was uh, really great to see. And, you know, it's ultimately, for the most part, on states. But there are things that Washington can do to, to help, particularly in this moment. Um, there are uh, many, many, many programs that currently exist with existing federal funding, things like money for students with special needs through the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, um, dollars for students in low-income districts through Title I. Um, those programs, they've existed since 65. They don't work well for the most part to meet uh, the needs of students they serve. And so families should be able to take those dollars elsewhere if we're going to fund those programs make the dollars portable, fund the family. And then and Corey alluded to this a minute ago, but turn the District of Columbia into an all-choice district. D.C. is under the jurisdiction of Congress. Congress has the authority to do that. Every single student from the moment they set foot in a kindergarten classroom should have an education savings account with their name on it. Thank you so much, Lindsay and Corey, for joining us. I think this was a really fabulous discussion. If you want to follow along with either of their work, you should follow them on Twitter at Lindsay M. Burke uh, or follow Corey at DeAngelis Corey. Uh, and if you're interested in more of our education work at the Heritage Foundation, you should check out heritage.org education. Thank you for joining us on COVID in the Classroom. I look forward to bringing you essential information for parents, educators, and students during this critical time. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app to receive a new episode every other Monday. If you enjoyed this show, please be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with someone who might need it. We hope to see you next time. COVID and The Classroom is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop.